It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. We're gearing up for our next season to begin. Season 13, to be exact. That's right. And all season long, we'll be looking at past awards categories and discussing the nominated films. We're kicking off our new season with a series looking at the 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominees. But back in season five, we discussed six of the ten nominees. Because of that, we're releasing those episodes now so that you can get ready for this series. That's right. We're going to release those episodes from 2015 and 2016, in which we discuss Gone with the Wind, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Ninochka, Stagecoach, and The Wizard of Oz. And to top it off, we'll be streamlining those older episodes a bit, so they're just focusing on the films themselves. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Andy? Yes. Listen. The simpleton of all time, a big-eyed patriot, he knows Washington and Lincoln by heart. He stood at attention in the governor's presence, collects stray boys and cats. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a significant picture. It is significant because it emphasizes democracy in action. I consider it a real privilege and a real experience to have played even a minor part under the distinguished direction of Frank Cameron. By far the greatest picture of filmdom's top director, three-time winner of the coveted Academy Award, the most timely, the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood, a homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly-wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans with those inimitable Capra overtones of drama, laughter and romance, plus the finest supporting cast ever assembled. Oh, Andy, Mr. Smith, I please tell me that I'm not completely uh, bamboozled. I'm I'm under the Ninochka curse. 
and that I'm not alone in delightfully loving this film. You're not. And I think that, I mean, I haven't seen either of the next two films that we're going to be talking about, The Roaring Twenties or Only Angels Have Wings, but I have a sense that this is going to be the top of my 1939 list. Ugh. And I, I think it's just, it's it's one of my, it's just a top film. I mean, this is such a solid film. I think it's so heartwarming. It's so honest and just so touching and funny and just such a, a great film to watch and it still is something that is actually relevant too. No, oh, absolutely. I, I put this on, uh, I started it uh, the night before yesterday and, you know, I put it on around 7.30, you know, I was just watching it in the living room and I thought this is going to be my strategy. I just want to see if I can con my family into joining me for this film. And my daughter walks in and the first thing she says is black and white, <laughs> right? I got the eye roll. I said, yeah, you know, I know you're not interested. <clears throat> so I, that's it. I'm silent. And then she sits down on the arm of the sofa. And my son comes in. My son, he's, he's like, oh, why is it all? Because it's on the, you know, the HDTV and it's it's pillar boxed. He says, why is right. it all squishy? Oh, well, it's an old movie. Oh. And they're both sitting, sitting down. Hour and 10 minutes later. When I have to turn it off because it's bath time, they're both absolutely riveted in the politics of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I conned them both into watching it. We finished it last night. They loved it. They loved it. Awesome. Right? That's so great to hear. Ugh, such a relief. Such a relief. I feel like I've done something really good in the universe today. <laughs> Uh, 1939, it is a political comedy drama, of course, starring Jim's, Jim's, the young Jim's Stewart and, uh, Gene Arthur, ah, adorable Gene Arthur, about, uh, uh this, uh, this, uh, Midwestern, uh, guy goes to Washington and has a, a bigger impact than anybody ever imagined. It yes. is a celebration of the filibuster, and, uh, it is a, uh, a practically a documentary on the evil, dark underbelly of the business impact on politics in Washington. So it, it, it stood up well to you. Yes, it did. Absolutely. Yeah. And I had watched this fairly recently, maybe a couple months ago, two or three months ago. Mm -hmm. It's it, And I loved it then. I was excited to watch it again. It's one of those films that it's just, I mean, it's a Frank Capra film. I think his films stand the test of time so well because he really taps into the characters and this level of honesty with the characters that just make them so easy to watch and so easy to connect with. I had a, just a very easy time connecting with, um, uh, what was the last film that we talked about of his? Why did I just blank on it? Um, it happened one night. We did talk about that. Which yeah. I absolutely loved. And likewise with this film. They're just so easy to connect with. And this one has so much more going for it. I mean, not that I don't love It Happened One Night, but this one has so much more going for it because it actually is a look at our political system in the country. And I'm sure at the time, Capra was uh, feeling much more positive about, you know, there's just this one corrupt senator um, and this Mr. Smith is going to kind of turn things around and straighten everything out. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't realizing that as time went by, there'd be more and more corrupt senators corrupted by corporate interests and everything. Um, but it's just so interesting to look at now and look at our political system to just really get a glimpse at the dark side of what ours has become. And really now it's more, could our political system ever actually have a real Mr. Smith in it now? I'm not even sure a real Mr. Smith would even get elected. Would even bother, exactly. <laughs> real Mr. <laughs> Smith wouldn't even wouldn't even give it a shot. But what's you know what's so funny when you look at it the way you just described it, uh, it it it's almost like you you can see the people who watch this film and said, "Wow, that Jim Taylor, what a role model." You mean we can <laughs> do that? Right. <laughs> Uh, yes, the Donald Trumps of the world. Textbook. <laughs> Are you telling me that because I have enough? You mean really? <laughs> it's like uh, shock and awe felt across the land. I love it. What's funny is that uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, who is the uh, President Kennedy's father at the time, and actually had been in the Hollywood system 
for a time. He was actually, I believe, in Europe at the time this came out. And I can't remember what he was doing. He was like the uh, some liaison. He was, or, a, he was the ambassador to Great Britain. Was he, he was the ambassador? Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he yep. was the ambassador. He actually told them that, oh, you, you shouldn't release this in Europe. It's going to affect our relations with these countries because they're going to think we're corrupt. They're going to look down on the American system and all that. And it's just so funny that he did that because he himself was a Jim Taylor. Like, if you look at his business dealings and the way that he strategized uh, his all of his business that he did uh, before and after his politics, he was Jim Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, the the impact of this one surprised me as I was reading about it. The impact from the uh, from the Hayes office did that. Does that surprise you at all that there was some concern? from the Hayes office about this film. For me, it seems, you know, and obviously I'm watching it with the benefit of, you know, uh, nearly 100 years of uh, media behind me, but uh, media history uh, since the film was released. But they were concerned that this would, uh, that this film uh, would degrade, would, would act as a covert attack on the democratic form of government. It's, yeah, I, I, it's sad to say that I'm not surprised, I think. <laughs> I think what it is, is that the Hayes office started looking at everything that, that could, that they could see as potentially damaging in any way or looking at something not in a good light. They started seeing everything as damaging. And I think that's what happened. And I think that's why it ended up collapsing because I think people were finally fed up. I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but it seems to me, like, you know, it just seems they were going down a dark road um, of accusing. It's, it's just finger pointing, you know? Yeah, I, I do. You know, that that's the, the, the attack on democracy was the initial, um, you know, was the, the initial position by the Hayes office. But Joseph Breen, uh, who was the head of the office at the time? It, he reversed course, and I think his comment is 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 one that really is is worth noting uh, that the film is a grand yarn that will do a great deal of good for those who see it. And in my judgment, it is particularly fortunate that this kind of story is to be made at this time. Out of all of Senator Jeff's difficulties, there has been evolved the importance of a democracy, and there is splendidly emphasized the rich and glorious heritage which is ours and which comes when you have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Which I think is really is really a sound statement on this film. It is a sweet film, but an important one. It could be that he was looking at the unpublished story by Lewis Foster before it had been written, because he didn't make that statement until the screenplay had actually been written yes. and submitted. So that's possible. And, and I mean... I don't know if the gentleman from Montana, uh, Lewis Foster's um, unpublished story, has ever has since been published. I didn't look into that, but um, that could be the reason. Yeah, there might have just I, been a different a tone. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, and and it is interesting, and I think that the film it does a good job to present an isolated incident and and not, um, you know, it doesn't point out the 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 flaws and the the sort of criminal misdeeds of every senator. And I also think it does a pretty darn good job of uh, really highlighting the story of Senator Payne uh, as, you know, as he kind of explains his evolution uh, from becoming the wide-eyed uh, senator uh, to becoming a guy who is compromised. This is, of course, Senator Payne played by wonderful Claude Rains uh, in this film. This is, I, I think this is my favorite role of his. Oh, you think so? I think so. Not the I, Invisible Man. I deeply enjoyed this. <laughs> he's been so good in so many films. Yeah. Claude Rains is just, he's one of my favorites. Anytime I see Claude Rains is in a movie, I know that there's at least one element I'm going to really enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Because he's just, he's just awesome. He's just, he's great. And he's, he's, you're right. He's fantastic in this. And in a part that is, uh, it's not blatantly written as somebody who's vocalizing how, uh, his transformation is happening as he's kind of changing because of watching what's happening with Jefferson Smith. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's some great 
scenes of subtext, as we just see his face, as he's seeing what Taylor is doing, and as he's listening to what's going on, and even as he's sitting there uh, listening to Jeff um, being accused before the uh, the hearing, or when uh, when Jeff is doing his filibuster, there are those great scenes of just his face and his reaction, and you know when. He, when Jefferson is looking at him and his eyes just move a little bit, you can read so much guilt in that expression. And it's so great the way he plays that. But then it's just so great when he goes on the attack again. It's like his verbal approach and, and his outward approach is so aggressive toward Jeff. Um, while he, while when he's not, you just see his face. You can tell that it's eating him up. I, I think that plays into, you know, the role of, of Jeff's journey from naivety to uh, understanding. Uh, and, and I think that's an interesting thing. You know, we were, we, I was trying to explain it to, to my kids, the journey from naivete to cynicism, which I think is on display in this film. And yet uh, what James Stewart's role is, is really there to highlight is, is the celebration of wisdom. Uh, you know, what comes when you have understanding and you don't fall prey to compromise. The, the scene in which uh, Senator uh, Smith confronts Senator Payne in Payne's office, and we get the sort of mini soliloquy from Payne uh, where he, he talks about his compromise. Uh, it is that is a pivot, a major pivot, not just in the film, but in the in in Payne's um, character, because we've seen, you know, the way he works his face. And in fact, I think we've seen his guilt. We see his guilt on display from the very first moment we see Payne and Smith on stage together back in, you know, uh, Montana, when they uh, when he says, you know, uh, when Smith stands up and says, I don't think I can do much good because you have such an incredible senator in Payne. Uh, you know, he was good friends with my father. And I think right mm-hmm. then we see pain, you know, we, we see on his face. Oh, my God, I can't believe I know what we're about to do to this poor guy. I yeah. know what I know. Suddenly what I am is wrong. Yeah. And and that is I mean, his transformation, the, his journey leading up to that soliloquy. And I compromised. Yes. So that all these years I could stay in that Senate and serve the people in a thousand honest ways. Uh, I, I think that is. Uh, it's like a plea for Jeff to stop and and to end the way it does his storyline, you know, to attempt to uh, to kill himself. Right. Right. Is is, you know, and, and I think the film sort of makes light of that because that sequence is such a celebration. But it, it's an incredibly sorrowful moment. It really is. And uh, Frank Capra certainly was not one to ever shy away from suicidal tendencies in his films. Um, it comes up quite frequently um, throughout his career. And um, it, it, there's a, I think there's, that's kind of that level of darkness. This film doesn't, doesn't go into quite the level of darkness that he goes into in some of his other films. But I think that's where the darkness lies, is in that corruption and how it's basically destroying pain to the point where he does want to kill himself. And yes, the ending is so um, victorious when, when pain confesses and uh and and really uh you know smith is victorious and then but and and it ends so quickly all of a sudden it's just like and then we're out yeah the end um and so you don't really get a chance to do any wrap-ups with any of the characters uh but um and so yes i think that there is a uh an interesting element where we don't really linger or we don't get to find out more about you know what happens to pain and is he going to end up being okay now um, or does he end up going to an institution because he's driven himself, you know, mad because of this whole thing or what? Um, we get out of it so quickly. So it's, it's an interesting way to end the story. It feels very abrupt to me. Yeah. But, uh, and I know there was another ending to the film that did get, uh, cut. Yeah. I was because... just going to mention that. Did you, did, did you have a chance to read the script? I didn't look at the script, but I, I heard them talking about what was in the original ending, and then I guess it just didn't work. I, I don't think Capra was happy with the audience's reaction with it, so he just yeah, it's interesting it. because we do, and and that was the thing I I I always think about this at the end of the film. What I really want to see is what happens to Jim Taylor, right? He's the right, ultimate, yeah. you know, mechanic behind all of this, and he's the industrialist, and we see him so actively trying to thwart all the good that is actually happening in the Senate as a result of Senator Smith. And in the original um, script, there is this 
sequence where we go back to, uh, you know, we go back to hometown and we're in the middle of a, a you know, we see um, uh, Saunders and Smith in a parade, a giant parade around, and, and they've got these, you know, Smith to Senate, to the Senate for life. And, uh, we get, uh, Hopper, the governor saying, you know, I've just, I've just begun. I'm gonna find more Jefferson Smiths. I'm gonna clean out our glorious state of every vestige of James Taylor. And, and so we get to, to see that Taylor has been thwarted and the city is free and finally flowing again. And, and in that moment in this parade, uh, we see that, uh, Smith, sees uh, Payne standing in the crowd watching the parade and Smith jumps out of the car and goes and grabs him and says, this parade is for you too. come with me and get in the car. And so the two of them, uh, you know, are, are in this parade together. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then, you know, Smith and Saunders go back to his house and he introduces him to more birds and pets. It's actually very strange. The last line of that cut is, uh, and in the pet shop, Saunders and Jeff are seen entering. On seeing Jeff, the animals go berserk. And in a comparative lull, Jeff says to them, meet Clarissa, fellas. And the scene fades out. The end. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, say what you will about the parade. I can see why they cut that sequence based on that last line alone. Yeah. Weird. Right. Weird, so weird Dr. Doolittle feel. <laughs> So funny. Oh, yeah, I don't quite understand that ending. Yeah. I mean, I can see the rest of it fitting in, though. You know, that's, I guess that's, maybe he cut it just because of that one thing, but it does seem strange. I, I'm not even sure why the audiences wouldn't have been happy seeing that resolution. It, well, that's exactly it, right? It's because you, you sort of imagine that the audience is, is keen for a resolution and that just winning uh, it, it may come off as a bit unsatisfactory. And, and that's, that's my feeling. I mean, I, I, you know, this doesn't even satisfy my need to see Jim Taylor squirm. Um, you know, it's, it's fine, but, and I get it. And I'm glad to end on a win, but Capra is so good at ending on up notes. It just sort of feels weird. The, well, because I mean, the last thing that we really see, uh, I mean, one of the last things we see of Jim Taylor is ordering his goons to go. <laughs> attack these children you know all of all <laughs> of uh, right. smith's boy rangers who are out spreading the the good word of smith and they're like they're like beating these kids up crashing into their cars just running over their wagons that was the worst he ran <laughs> like, over the boy ranger wagon i know that they crashed into their car i was uh, like man this is violent right. they run them off the road <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. an intense little sequence. I'm like, man, this this Taylor is serious. He really means business. <sighs> yeah. Oh my, 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 my. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reels logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Well, what do we, uh, what do we, do you want to talk about, uh, old, uh, Edward Arnold? How'd you feel about his performance of the bad guy? 
Uh, I love Edward Arnold. He is great as this type of character. I mean, he's he's a great character actor from the period, and that's what he uh, really was known for was was character acting. In fact, he I think at one point he said that he was giving up. Uh, trying to get the lead roles in things because people wanted him to lose weight. And so he, he said, oh, I gave up on that because I didn't want to lose any weight. So I just keep getting fatter and I keep getting better roles. <laughs> <laughs> so he said, yeah, the bigger I got, the better character roles I received because he really enjoyed these character roles. And you can just see him totally eating it up in this film. And he was great and You Can't Take It With You. I, come and get it a few years before that. I really loved him in that. Uh, but this film, I mean, he really is just a no-nonsense, cutthroat businessman who's ready to control uh, Washington and do everything he needs to do to get what he wants. I agree with you. He is a treat to watch and and uh, really just believable all the way through. I mean, he is he is the industrialist. And even when he's barking out these those crazy orders and working the phones himself, getting his reporters to to print whatever he wants them to print, he's just diabolical and so overt about it. I mean, there is no there, there's no uh, he, he doesn't need to hide any of his. Um, of his machinations. Like just, it's just out in the open and it's just brilliant and uh, totally buy it. Yeah, his, he, because he knows the only place he really needs to hide his machinations is actually in Congress and that's why he has pain doing all of his mm-hmm. bidding. Mm-hmm. So he's smart. And he certainly is one who's worked with uh, on and off with uh, Capro a number of times between this and then you can't take it with you before this. Meet John Doe after this. Uh, they had a good working relationship. So it's always nice to see him on screen. Let's see. Who else is, uh, do you want to talk about? We, we skipped uh, James Stewart and Gene Arthur. And I think intentionally. Well, yeah. I mean, James Stewart. I mean, come on. He's yeah. one of the all-time greats. I uh, just, I mean, he's... He really is so easy to watch. I just can watch him do anything. Mm-hmm. And uh I mean and the the interesting thing about him I think is that as wonderful as an actor as he was and really at a point in his career where things were really just getting going, he signed up to go off to war and he was actually the first actor, the first big actor to go and do that. Um so he uh he was a military flyer and he actually um, was, gosh, I, I can't remember how, how many hours, like I, he was flying just a bunch and I don't know. He's just one of those guys who you got to kind of tip your hat to him because he really believed in the America of the time and wanted to help Europe and, and Nazism and everything. And so, uh, he was out there fighting with everyone else. He was and it's funny. The timing is funny. I mean, he, this film came out in 39. He was drafted in 1940 and, uh, you know, served in the military actively until 1959. Uh, so, you know, a long career and retired a brigadier general. Yeah, not completely military. I mean, he was no. on and off. Right, right, films right. Right, right, right. But he was yeah. reserves after with the Air Force. He was reserved. But but just a, that is a that's a significant career, a dual career. Uh, and uh, you're right. Tip, it's, tip it's, of the hat. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I uh, and I just love. I mean, I I haven't hit a, a James Stewart movie that I don't love. I mean, he's just so great. Even American Tale Five Goes West. You know, I mean, <laughs> come on. Ah, <laughs> uh, gotta love him. I can't comment, or else I may cry. <laughs> uh, and uh, boy, Gene Arthur, very easy to fall in love with. Uh, a very interesting actress, kind of um, along the lines of Greta Garbo. In fact, people call her kind of the the most mysterious actress next to Greta Garbo because she was really intimidated by the business, and she was somebody who was was not wanting to go out onto set because she it just made her so nervous, and so she would always hide in her trailer. But she got along so well with Capra. Um, she and and Stewart had just worked on You Can't Take It With You. Um, right before this one. And she really, you know, he really helped her find a way to get her performances across. And and she continued acting until the, uh, was it the early 50s when she did Shane? 
And that was her last film performance. And then she did some, she went back and forth uh, from retirement to doing little TV things here and there or stage. But really, she kind of was trying to step out of the, out of the spotlight. So, um, yeah, she's, but she's so good in this. I, you know, this, this line uh, from Bill Takak's review of, of her this marvelous marvelous screen comedian's best asset was only muffled during her seven years stint in silent films that asset it was of course her squeaky frog-like voice which silent era cinema audiences had simply no way of perceiving must much less appreciating i find that really funny because um you know in, in reading some of the other reviews and even some of the the community reviews of this film that comment comes up that oh my gosh the film was great but i hate her voice I absolutely disagree with that. I find her voice uh, great. First of all, I think it's a, a wonderful character voice, but perfect for this film. And I think, you know, that you say she was intimidated by set is so funny to me because she comes off as so intimidating in this film. She is the person who knows everything. That voice has such a a clear and incisive timbre to it that, you know, when she speaks, you can't help but listen. And it makes it perfect for that Washington insider environment. I just I love everything about her portrayal of this character. I agree. And I agree about her voice. I, I find it mesmerizing to listen to. Yep. And they make a great couple. Boy, do they. And, and she's just so good. And I just watched Shane again recently, and she's just so great there. I mean, there's nothing funny in that film. She's just straight up, uh, you know, a Western wife. Mm-hmm. But she just does so good in that one, too. She just r- carried herself on screen so well, whatever the role. So absolutely a, a highlight of the film watching her in this. Absolutely. And, and another great character transformation, watching her go from the cynical, uh, you know, the person who, as she says to Payne, you know, I've, I, when I first came to this town, my eyes were big question marks. And now they're green dollar signs. She had gotten cynical at being a part of the system, but through Jeff and watching him win Congress because of his honesty, she actually makes a transformation. And that's just amazing to see. You know, should we talk a little bit about Mr. Deeds Goes to Town? We can. Well, I mean, because this this film, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, was supposed to be a sequel of Mr. Right. Deeds Goes to Town. And obviously that was a, a Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur film. And this was supposed Frank to— Frank Capra. And, and another, yes, right, Frank Capra. And, and uh, it was only because uh, Gary Cooper was not available— uh, that we end up with this, um, you know, this Smith. Smith. You know, they change the name. They they pivot the story and they put this uh, with Stuart and next to Gene Arthur. And I actually like them as a couple better. Uh, I find it a much sweeter engagement than Mister Deeds. I I do too. I mean, I really like Mister Deeds Goes to Town. Also, I think that's another yes. great no, I uh, agree. Capra film. Yeah, but this one has—I uh, mean, it's—it really does feel like Capra really stepped it up to get this film to where it is. And um, I, I, yeah, I guess I think that I—well, I, I, I'm just glad that this exists rather than Mr. Deeds goes to Washington. Yes. Yeah. I don't I know. Think, I, yeah, I don't know how you make that transition. Well, from no, I I don't either. I think yeah. there's there's a level of innocence and naivete and small townness that you really buy with Jimmy Stewart at the beginning of this, as he is, uh, you know, kind of introduced to us about ten fifteen minutes into the film, and and even as he first arrives in Washington, goes to uh, goes to Congress, everything. I mean, you really get a sense of him as that naive guy. And I I mean, I think Gary Cooper's great in Mr. Deeds, but I don't quite have that same sense of that naivete. Yep. You know? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I, you can feel sort of Stewart's Iowa upbringing, you know, I mean, you can feel his his roots in this film. He's just so good. What you bring up something really interesting around the, the script for me, which I think is is an interesting point. I mean, in, in so many ways, this film is such a great example of the hero's journey. Uh, and what I love so much about the script is, you know, we don't meet. Jefferson Smith, we don't actually see him until, as you say, like 15, 17 minutes into the film. But we get this experience of the old world, right? The world that he's living in uh, through the voices of others without meeting him so well. Like, we know exactly who this guy is, right? The leader of this kind of faux Boy Scouts troop, the Boy Rangers. He is a a youth. uh, He's a youth activist. He is, uh, you know, this 
fabulous scene uh, with Happy um, uh, is Happy. What's his name? Happy Hooper. Happy Hubert. Happy Hooper. Hubert. <laughs> Happy Hooper. Uh, the governor and his children, his children, uh, uh, a cast of six boys who love, love, love Jefferson Smith and Jefferson Smith's paper, newspaper that he publishes. The cast of boys uh, who is easily, uh, uh, you know, headed up by the wonderful baby dumpling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is the best. Uh, I, I don't know how you end up uh, letting that get in the credits, uh, actors uh, Larry Sims, but the credits says his baby dumpling. Anyway, so these kids tell the story of uh, of Jefferson Sims without us ever meeting Jefferson Sims. So we get a picture of exactly who this guy is and how he lives and how he exists in the, in the world as it is before we ever meet him. And I think that's really brilliant. Structurally, it just it's perfect. I, so I'm interested in your thoughts on the way the script is built. No, I think it's it's great. I mean, it, it sets up the world for us. And I mean, normally you do introduce the protagonist earlier in your script, but having it designed where you build this this uh, well, the the political machine, and then also the tailor machine, kind of that corporate machine in the first uh, sequence of the film, so that you really see how all of this stuff is is uh, is designed, how they've kind of made this system work for them. And uh, what their now their goal is, and then it gives us uh, it it really kind of introduces this uh, this uh, curiosity factor. It really hooks the audience in because we know it's called Mister Smith Goes to Washington, but we don't know who this Mister Smith is. We don't know. I mean, sure, we know Jimmy Stewart's in it, but it's like okay, we want to see what this guy's all about. And now we're kind of on the edge of our seats going, okay, who is it? We don't know what this guy is. They're talking about all these other guys. How does Smith get here? It's a really clever way to begin the film to to lead us down a road where we just don't know when we're going to actually get to meet Smith and how he even gets to be a part of this film because they don't even bring him up. It's not until the kids bring him up around the dinner table. And then there's the fantastic coin flip that the, that the governor does to actually decide that, that I'm going to pick Smith to be the one who's going to, who I'm going to send over uh, where the coin actually lands on its side. I looked up the odds of that. It's like one in 6,000 <laughs> tosses. <laughs> Which I think is pretty great, but it's it's just it is very smart script writing the way that it's designed to uh, to entice us to want to see who is our protagonist because it just we don't know when it starts. Yeah, I, it works so well to just bring us into into the story, and and I think by the time we actually meet him, by the time we see him at his dinner, he's so charming and so bumbling uh, that you just you just latch on and 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 really enjoy that ride. And it makes for all of these sort of major plot points, right? The the major elements where he he is uh, you know he's presented with the fact that the the dam is in fact uh, uh, already in motion, and and Saunders presents the bill that he was uh, he was squirreled away to miss the discussion on the floor of the Senate. Um, you know, that's a major point of his growing awareness when he has the meeting with Payne and Payne confesses his uh, his compromise. That's a major point. And when he finally, um, you know, is confronted by Saunders in the train station as he's about to leave and she convinces him that he's the man to lead change in Senate around this, but he has to do something big and they go off to get a drink and and that leads obviously to the filibuster um is it's it is just textbook perfect to me and i just have it i'm i'm sucked in every step of the way yeah i agree uh, script is written by sydney bunchman uh sydney bunchman has written obviously a lot of uh quite I think popular it's buckman. buckman buckman yeah Butch. <laughs> You know what? I look at it, I see like three extra N's in it. It's B-U-N-C-H-M-A-N-N. That's what how I see it. That's not how it's spelled, but that's how I see it. That's fantastic. He wishes he had more N's. Sydney he does. does. He does, Sydney yes. Buckman. Uh, Holiday, Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, Talk of the Town. Want Cary Grant's. He uh, was bl- another blacklisted. That's come up quite a bit in the last... Uh, a few shows um yeah, yeah he was blacklisted uh, because he refused to provide names and he was fined given a year suspended sentence and then uh yeah he finally returned to screenwriting in the 60s working on cleopatra and the group 
you like you like his stuff then is what you're telling me I like, I, yeah, I think he has some good stuff. You know what I find really interesting what? about the way that the Oscars worked back then is that he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Writing Screenplay. And Louis R. Foster, who wrote the unpublished story, uh, a gentleman from Montana, was nominated for Best Writing Original Story. And ended up winning the Oscar. Um, Sidney Buckman lost to Sidney Howard, who wrote Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's, it's, it seems so strange to me that they split those into two writing categories back then. It's like saying, wow. well, Stephen, Stephen King wrote the original story, so we're going to nominate him for that Oscar, but then we're going to nominate, uh, Frank Darabont for writing, writing the actual screenplay for another Oscar. And then see Stephen King win. Right. <laughs> It's it's so interesting to me that they actually had that as a separate writing category. That's then. fascinating. I had no yeah. idea. And the interesting thing is Louis R. Foster is the only person who won an Oscar for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for Best Writing Original Story. Wow. That's funny. Yeah. Who knew? Besides, besides you, I guess. Besides, <laughs> besides me, yes. yes. Uh, who else do you want to talk about? Well, um, Dmitry Tiomkin, Russian composer who has uh, written just a bunch of amazing scores, did a great bit of Americana for this. I, I really like the music. I think he did a bit kind of like what uh, happened in Gone with the Wind, where he actually took some nice little Americana tunes and integrated them into the score. And I think it works really nicely in this. I agree with you. I, I, I enjoyed this. I'm not a big fan of marches. And uh, pomp and circumstance of much Americana, but this was a nice score. Yeah, I think that sort of stuff works well in context of the film. Yeah. Um, Joseph Walker, cinematographer, we've talked about him on It Happened One Night and all the amazing things that uh, that he has done in his life as far as his patents and all that sort of stuff. But um, I got to say, watching this film, I was like, Oh, it's nice watching a film where I feel like there's really a guy who's doing some really interesting things with the camera behind it, unlike Ninochka, because I just like how the lighting was so much more interesting. Yeah. The the framing was much more interesting. It just didn't feel as stagey. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, some of that credit, I think, goes to I, and I'm I think it goes to Lionel Banks uh, in the art department or, or, you know, who else gets that that production design credit because this film i think did a really good job i mean most of it was shot on set some of it was shot uh on location in uh i, I think baltimore and washington dc but most of it was shot on set they they built a uh a senate chamber and and you know there's a lot of pride in the design of that senate chamber and it looks terrific uh huge set huge set and particularly the continuity between the main senate chamber proper and all of the various hallways and cloakrooms and offices off of these things and i think they just did a terrific job with this set really really thorough yeah Absolutely. And that's a, that's a very good point. Um, but, and, and then even beyond those, I mean, you get some, just some really interesting dark, uh, scenes lit where we, we see Taylor on the phone or something and it's just like surprisingly dark. Um, and then some great framing, which I think, uh, you know, is tribute to Capra as well as Walker. I love the scene when, um, Smith is talking to Payne's daughter and he stays on the hat Ugh. the whole time. We're following Smith's uh, hands as he's holding his hat and he's fumbling. And we get yes. the entire subtext of what's going on in that conversation just by watching his hat. That just is fantastic filmmaking. So right true. So true. I And the way he drops it and the way she giggles as you I mean, you can you just it's too it, it makes it so easy to visualize what is going on in that scene. It feels almost like a radio drama yeah. for that sequence. It's just perfect. I wanted to, uh, jumping back over to the acting category, I think we absolutely have to bring up the fantastic Harry Carey as the vice president or president of the Senate, as he is in this film. Not normally a an actor who is in this sort of film. Typically, he was in the Westerns. But uh, he made a transition really well to somebody who feels right at home in the Senate. He's so good as the, uh, as the I guess you could say, 
the person embodying the audience's reaction to everything that's going on in the Senate. Um, it's just, I mean, he has very few words, but everything, I mean, he got nominated for a supporting actor Oscar because everything is going on in his face as he's watching what Jeff is doing in Congress. It's, it's just, it's so good. I love that he is as president of the Senate comic relief. Because I can't help but laugh every time I see him smile knowingly and have to cover his mouth because of right. what's going on in the Senate chamber. It's just great. It's so good. He's he's just right on all yeah. the way through. I just really loved him in this. Um, and then I think the last person that I wanted to bring up was Dub Taylor, who he's got a very bit part in this um almost to a point where you wouldn't even recognize that he's in there i think he's he's one of the press people and you see him you catch him a few times uh most notably when smith storms into the press room and tries to beat up that one uh reporter um dub taylor is just one of those faces that is uh, that i grew up with as somebody who is just like this, this classic Western face. But you look at, you can't take it with you. You see him as the xylophone player. You see him popping in here. He's another guy like Eddie Arnold, yeah. who just shows up as a bit player and just lives the role. He's, he's just great. And and once you see his face, uh, <laughs> you you will not forget him. You will not forget him in Back to the Future Three. Uh, yeah, you right. will not forget him in Maverick, in The Wild Bunch. Uh, I mean, he is, he's in, well, I mean, the guy's got 251 credits. The guy's in everything. He really uh, is. If it was a Western, he was probably in it. Yeah, pretty much. He was in The Rescuers. He was yeah. in, a voice in The Rescuers. That's right, he was. That's my five <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Bernard and Miss Bianca. <sighs> Please. Uh, yes. <laughs> i think that was hot list of actors um one more note about uh capra this is his last film with columbia pictures we talked about with uh um uh, it happened one night how he got along really well with uh, harry cohen who was running uh columbia their relationship uh, was strained a little bit um, just because of the the way that Capra would spend money. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't an overspender, but he would push it. And and I think Cohn panicked quite a bit about things like Cohn told him that he could only uh, shoot uh, he could shoot as many takes as he wanted, but he could only print one take. And so, you know, Capra found a way to get around that by basically he would shoot multiple, multiple takes in the same shot. Like he would, he would, uh, keep the camera rolling as soon as one was done and have them do it again and again. So that when they printed the take, he was getting like three takes. And so, you know, he would find ways like that to uh to kind of get his way a little bit and cone and he had some had i wouldn't say it was a falling out but i think that um capper really decided after this that it was time for him to step out and do some more on his his own i mean he was a big name at the time he really was and so and because of filming the liberty bell ringing here from this he ended up creating liberty films fancy that and actually along with Jimmy Stewart, he also went off to war. And he ended up shooting a bunch of wartime documentaries, I think Why We Fight. I think he shot seven of these films. And he integrated a lot of Nazi footage. And um, it really took a toll on him. So after this, his films get much darker. Uh, It happened one night. We did talk uh, at at great length uh, about this uh, wonderful filmmaker. And you can listen to that. It was episode 94 uh, that was, gosh, that was a while ago. That was back in August of 2013. Search for that mm. on the website, yeah. It's a little while ago. I know. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. 
the originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right. Uh, how'd it do? Uh, we've, we've talked about the, uh, we've talked about one Oscar. It had what, 11 nominations? It had 11 nominations. This film, uh, yeah, was received well, um, at the Oscars, at least, although it only won the one for Lewis Foster. Um, Columbia Pictures, uh, Frank Capra was nominated for Outstanding Production and he was nominated for Best Director as well. Jim Stewart, Best Actor. Um, he didn't win. Jimmy Stewart ended up winning the very next year for a Philadelphia story. And people, some people say that he won that because he, uh, everybody kind of wanted him to win for this film. But who knows? Mm. Uh, Sidney Buckman, like I said, was nominated for Best Writing Screenplay. Um, Harry Carey and Claude Rains were both nominated for Best Supporting Actor. The winner, of course, was Thomas Mitchell, who's great in this as Diz, but of course um, he, who, and also he was also in Gone with the Wind, but of course Thomas Mitchell won Best uh, Supporting Actor Oscar for his role in Stagecoach that he had played. Right. He was one of those really busy people in 1939. Um, Lionel Banks lost Best Art Direction to Gone with the Wind. Gene Havlick and Al Clark lost Best Film Editing to Gone with the Wind. Dimitri Tiomkin uh, lost Best Music Scoring to The Wizard of Oz. And John P. Lividary lost Best Sound Recording to When Tomorrow Comes. Um, it was a film that was received uh, modestly. Uh, I mean, when it premiered, it, they had the premiere in D.C., and all of the press people and all of the senators absolutely hated it. They were so offended by it, and they thought that the film was just saying all the wrong things, um, which strikes me as interesting that the senators were saying that. It's like, hmm. It feels like what? if you're the senator to bring that up, you know, it, 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 this is a uh, the one who smelt it, dealt it kind of a situation. <laughs> right. That's exactly what it seems like. <laughs> really? You're going to sure? say that? Are you sure you're upset about that, Senator? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even the, the the senator from Montana and his family, they were so upset that they walked out of the screening. I mean, they were all just, they all felt like, you know, Capra was making a dig on their system. And I, I you know, uh, obviously time has changed and it, it was received well by audiences. So at least there's that. But uh, yeah, it did, uh, it did kind of, you know, make it harder for them to get out of the gate. And Capra was kind of flabbergasted. He really... Uh, was taken by surprise by the whole thing. But this thing cost $1.9 million to make at the time, which is about $31.8 million in our dollars. It uh, ended up grossing domestically about $9 million, so it was still a handsome amount of money to make, which is about $150.8 million. So all told, it did pretty well for itself. Not as good as Gone with the Wind, but it did have an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $922.5 uh, per finished minute. So it's, it still did pretty well. It's one of those, it's, it is a super frustrating uh, year to talk about, but a super frustrating film to talk about because I think it holds up so well over time, uh, particularly compared to uh, Gone with the Wind uh, for me in terms of just enjoying watching the film. Yeah, absolutely. There was an actual Jeff Smith who ran for office in 2004, um, a, a documentary filmmaker followed him 
and made a film called Can Mr. Smith Get to Washington Anymore? And this is a Missouri politician. Uh, Jeff Smith uh, was the uh, a Democrat running in Missouri, and uh, this filmmaker, Frank Popper, followed him. And Jeff Smith, unfortunately, did not end up getting into office. And then after the fact, he is actually several years after the film even came out, August 2009, Jeff Smith pled guilty and was sentenced to a year and a day in prison for his involvement in federal election law violations committed during the congressional campaign depicted in the film and the subsequent cover up. To my point earlier, there is no Mr. Smith out there anymore. Not that even the real Jeff the Smith. humanity. <laughs> That's oh, horrible. I know. That's so, so dark. It really is. It's just, it's sad oh. that it's like, that's just further proof. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing I was going to say, I was curious about filibusters. It's like, okay, so where, uh, who had the longest filibuster? Do you know? Uh, no, I don't. Because the, there was a, a filibuster fairly recently. Yeah. Back it, in uh, 2013. Right. March, well, that wasn't the longest, right? No, it wasn't. That was Rand Paul um, filibuster on uh, uh, C- proposed CIA director John Brennan's confirmation. But the longest spoken filibuster in American history was by Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who went on for 24 hours and 18 minutes in filibustering the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Wow. I'm sure that was that was a real barn burner. I'm sure. You know, but it's interesting because I was like, that's a really long time to be standing there talking. How does he do it? And so they had some... Uh, little notes about his preparation. Thurmond took a steam bath earlier in the day to rid his body of excess liquid to avoid the potential for any accidents in the chamber. He went to the floor armed with cough drops and malted milk tablets. He allowed others to make short remarks and ask questions during his time, allowing him to sneak off to the cloakroom to gobble a sandwich. And he had his aide wait in the cloakroom with a pail when he was about to step down from the dais in case of an emergency evacuation. <laughs> Things you have to think about when you're getting ready to stand in front of people and talk for 24 straight hours. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, You know, as you're talking, I brought up the the list. A lot of them get up in that 20, over 20 hour mark, right? The top five are all over. Well, no, the top three are over 25, but 18 hours and number four and 16 hours. number. That's a long time to talk. That is a really long time to talk. I, I I find it such an interesting element to our political system. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's very Roman. Yeah, and the funny thing, of course, is that the Senate passed the bill and Thurman's uh, marathon didn't change a single vote. Right, which Sad. I think is that's also very a lot Roman. Of these. Yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, thumbs down. Uh, that's right. <laughs> Black marble to you. Now go throw up. Uh, let's uh, let's now let's rank it. I think we should do let's that. do it. All let's right. I have my black and white marble, and I am ready to drop them for you, Andy, at flickchart.com slash the next reel. And you should go there, and you should line them up, and see if your films uh, match our top films, uh, and uh, as we stack rank them. And I think this one's going to do fairly well. That's my I that's think my so bet. Too. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Hot Fuzz. I'm saying Mr. Smith. I am too. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I'm saying Mr. Smith. So am I. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Fight Club, Pete. <clears throat> oh, dear. <laughs> uh i i note that you are not speaking i i'm saying mr smith actually are you really i am huh. it I, I love fight club i think yeah. there's so much going on in fight club but mr smith ends up moving me uh in in a way that uh that i like to be moved <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. I will go with Mr. Smith. Uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I'm saying Mr. Smith. I do like how Butch and Sundance move me. <laughs> I mean, it's no Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. <laughs> but I will be going with Mr. Smith. All right. Mr. Smith goes to Washington 
or touch of evil. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Absolutely. That's actually an easy one. For that is an easy yeah. one. Yeah. Mr. Smith goes to Washington or seven. Now it's now it's more challenging. It is more challenging. Wow. Here. Um, at no point in Mr. Smith did we need to find out what's in the box. <laughs> nope. Um, then again, the same could be said about uh, seven. We had to find out what was in the box. Mm-hmm. I have a hard time not picking. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm torn on this one actually, yeah, because I, because seven is in my top five. Yes, but right now I'm feeling like Mr. Smith. There is, there's something about the the classic sensibilities that Capper brings here about this 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 fight of innocence to uh, to do something better. It's, it, I, I don't think that it's a, uh, you know, people always say Capricorn. Uh, with uh, Capra films, and we talked about Capra-esque and the whole thing last time. Yeah, I, I don't find it corny. I find there's an honest an, an honesty to the innocence presented in the film that uh, creates a power of its own. Yeah, yeah, I I agree, and I mean, Mr. Smith did did very well in my own uh, my own ranking. <sighs> Um, but I, I'm going to have to say, uh, Mr. Smith. I'm so torn. I'm like back to seven now. You are just cause seven I said is, that. No, I, I, I was, I was, uh, you know, I, I was waxing philosophical about Mr. Smith, but I was just, I was debating with myself. I'm still debating with myself. I'm torn. Huh? I'll go with Mr. Smith. It's a strong film. I can't believe I'm saying that, but it really is a really good film. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or Raising Arizona. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. I agree. What is happening? <laughs> I was not but, expecting this. Strangely, <laughs> this is the peril of flick chart because that was an easy one for me. That is an easy rank for me. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Pete, or Network. Network. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to get pretty, get up pretty early to give us a new number one, my friend. A new number yeah. one is a that's a tougher battle. I I'm I'm half leaning to Mr. Smith though. Really? Or not? I am. I am. But I'll go with network, Mr. I, I mean, me, Mr. It makes me a little <laughs> nervous to like all of a sudden. Oh, our top five has been rattled so much <laughs> the last few months. <laughs> I so okay. Um, I'll I'll give it to I'll give it to Network. Uh, Mr. Smith is number two. We have a new number two. Uh, ben Lott will be happy to know that Mad Max Fury Road has been bumped out of top five. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now it's Network. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Raising Arizona seven and Jaws. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Man, Jaws is at number five. How the mighty have fallen. That is amazing. That's just amazing. It's a strong uh, top five. It's a strong top ten. I it, mean, it's really... It is. It's a strong set of films. I am happy with that ranking, actually. I, that feels really good. We'll see if I'm just completely hungover in the morning. <laughs> uh, so. I, I, I'm thrilled with it. I think, I think it's, a, it's a good film. Being in the top five, I think, is, a, is definitely a fair place. This, to me, exemplifies the great films of 1939, more so than what we've talked about thus far. I really uh, just feel very passionately about this film. Yeah, me too. I'm going to go to bed. All right. I got to go out and drink this over. So I'm going to start, and we're going to move down. Okay. So I'm going to start right in the middle. It's a three-star uh, from Bethel Owen. Uh, not up to the standard of It's a Wonderful Life. 
There are nice things about this movie. The ending is weird and sudden, though, and I can't help but thinking of Rand Paul while watching this film. So what's so great about Mr. Smith? He doesn't seem to do anything except make people feel like confessing their evil doings, and then he faints. Pretty weak. I definitely prefer It's a Wonderful Life, Capra's better film. <laughs> yeah, take that, Mr. Smith, That's you what weakling. Mr. is <laughs> a weakling. What did he do? He wore sensible shoes for the day. He brought an apple and thermos. Whoop de doo. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. All right, what do you got? Well, I've got a I've got a one star by Richard A. Smith who says, I love this movie. <laughs> so I think he's still working on what star ratings actually mean. And then he follows that up with how can I make my thirteen year old daughter watch this with me? She doesn't want to. And then, of course, the best part of this is all of the comments. Seriously? Wanting parenting advice on an Amazon review site? You rate this movie at one star because you can't get your daughter to watch it with you? I give your parenting skills one half of one star and your comprehension of how to rate a movie one half of one star. If it were possible to give zero stars, I would. But Amazon does not allow zero star ratings. And then uh, another person <laughs> replied, Forster at gunpoint! That usually works! <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, Sometimes you gotta wonder. Right. Wow. Thanks, Amazon. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to learn more about membership, head on over to thenextreel.com slash membership where you can see how you can support the show. Thanks, everybody. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.